The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Third John, John's third letter. In verse 5, he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Uh, the word for hospitality uh, is a word that means the love of strangers. That is the love of those outside our own circle that we welcome and treat as one of our own. And so he says, I, I'm praising you for this. And he says in verse 6, And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, that is, for the sake of Christ, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Next week, we have a brother and sister, a family coming down to visit with us. He's going to speak on Sunday morning. They're getting ready to go to the mission field to West Africa, to an Islamic nation, and uh, do the work of the gospel there. It seemed way too dangerous for me when he told me about it, especially with four little children, but he is convinced and she is convinced that God has sent them there and the doors have opened and they're going to be leaving in January. So he's going to come and be with us this next week. He's going to be at our house fellowship on Wednesday night, him and his wife and their children. And if you'd like to visit our house fellowship on Wednesday night, you're welcome to come. And uh, then uh, he's going to be preaching on Sunday. And of course, we'll have a a, a meal together celebrating the whole thing of missions. Over the last 19 years, we've been able to support missionaries around the world. And it's a great privilege when people go out. The greatest support we can give any missionary is to actually pray for them, to call their name before the Father. And that's what it is great. If you had 100 churches praying for you wherever you went in the world and you knew it, it would be an incredible uh, sense of support and uh, encouragement. So we want to be uh, praying for them and uh, seeking to be as much help to them as we possibly can. Now, I want to speak to you this morning about upon whom are you leaning? Who are you trusting? You heard Proverbs 3 this morning, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. The word lean is one of those words. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the primary words for faith is a word that means to lean means to lean on someone. Now, Christianity is preeminently a religion of faith. We call it the Christian faith. Uh, Galatians 3, when it's describing, and Paul's describing the coming of Christ, he calls it, when faith came. And the reason he says that is it's when the one upon whom we have set our trust and hope came into the world. Uh, we we talk about Christ all the time. We sing about him. We sing about his blood and so forth. And sometimes it's easy for people who've never been exposed to teaching of the gospel to wonder what in the world is it with these people? Why are they always talking about Jesus and his blood and so forth? Uh, I was reading a, a paper by a professor at a secular college, secular university, and he said, one thing you will never hear in a classroom is the word love or the word Jesus. <laughs> I thought, Wow. That's all you're going to hear here is love and Jesus because Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. We trust him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 without, says without faith it is impossible to please God. But of course we have to ask the question what is faith? What is faith anyway? 
uh, what are we talking about? Because it's interesting in our culture, a lot of times when people hear the word faith, they think you're talking about a leap in the dark. If you believe something, it will become true. And that's not biblical faith at all. Uh, the, the key, like I said, one of the key words in the Old Testament for faith is a word that means to lean on something. And the point is, God is the object of our trust. And he can support us. He can support our weight. This is an idea that's popular in a lot of songs that you, you've heard over the years. Lean on me when, you are, when, when you're not strong. Or he ain't heavy, he's my brother. A bridge over troubled waters. It's a common uh, idea that we use. We, we actually have the expression, he's his right-hand man. And what that actually means, what that meant when that phrase was coined was, he's a person upon whom he always leans and rests and relies upon. Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Faith is trust. Faith is trust. And I think leaning is a great picture of what this trust is. God is the object of our trust, and he can support us. And so the warning is we have to be very careful about who we are leaning upon. Who are you leaning upon? There's a story told in the scriptures, in fact, three different times. It must be important it's the story about uh, King, King Hezekiah in Jerusalem who was under siege by the Assyrian army, Sennacherib. I know you've heard of him. But I want you to turn for just a second to uh, Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. 36 chapter of Isaiah. This is the account. One of the three places the story is told. King Hezekiah was a good king. He had repented, and he, and he tore down all of the, the idols' temples and the groves where people would go and worship the idols in, throughout Israel, throughout Judah. And now it says in verse 1 of chapter 36 of Isaiah, now in the 14th year, King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Now, all the fortified cities were those cities around Jerusalem, out in the outlying area that were fortified. They were, not, they were supposed to be too strong to be taken over, but the, the army of Sennacherib came in and took over all these cities. And it says in verse 2, and the, uh, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh. And that's just a title for his general. Rabshakeh uh, came from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. This is a huge army. The Assyrians were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at this moment. And so when they come and surround Jerusalem, it says, and he stood by the conduit of the upper field on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, and the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. He came out to this foreign general who wanted to, was threatening them to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And then it says, and then Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, go back and tell the king this. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, what is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed. He thinks they're trusting Egypt to come and deliver them. And what he doesn't know is Hezekiah is trusting Jehovah, the Lord of Israel. 
But Reb Shaka says to him, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, you're trusting him? If you lean on him, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. In other words, he says, uh, you're a fool. You should surrender and you should seek peace with King Sennacherib because he's the greatest king in all the world. And you should submit. And he thinks that he's leaning upon, trusting the king of Egypt. But in fact, Hezekiah is trusting God. And God delivers them in a supernatural way. So the question today I want to ask you is, is what are you placing your weight upon? Um, We have to lean on something to make it through life. Sometimes children are thrust out of childhood in this rude awakening that they're on their own. Some of you have seen those pictures from Aleppo and Syria and those portal children that's bombed out city and these children that were so abused by this whole situation. And here they are all alone, barely surviving this attack. And the whole world got up in arms about it. Well, that happens sometimes very early in life. We have to learn to put our trust in the one upon whom we can actually put our weight. And so the question today is, uh, upon whom are we trusting? Uh, Faith is trust. Believe is trust. We talk about believing in the biblical sense. We're talking about trusting Christ. Trusting him to be the one who can save us and bring us into a right relationship with God and who can walk with us throughout life and give us everything that we desperately need. We trust him. Now, uh, faith always produces faithfulness. Faithfulness means being full of faith, but it also means being trustworthy. Sometimes what we do is we talk so much about faithfulness that we forget, wait a minute, what we have to have is faith in Christ, and then that faith in Christ will produce a faithfulness in us. So when we stand before God, it's because of what Christ has done and what Christ not only has done on the cross, but what he's doing in our lives today. And throughout all of life, that's going to make us fit to stand before God. You'll never find faith without faithfulness. Uh, The Bible is really clear. It says if a man says he has faith and he doesn't walk in obedience to God, he's deceiving himself. But it is your faith in Christ that gives you this relationship. So what does it mean to have faith in Christ? This is really a good question. Some people think that faith in Christ, they they have the impression that faith in Christ is just believing something that's crazy, but if you believe it strong enough, it will become true. That's not faith. That's the kind of thing that's in a movie. You remember Indiana Jones and and the Last Crusade? Indiana Jones has to go across this chasm. There's no way to get across there, but he's told if you believe, there'll be a bridge there, and so he takes a step. You just have to step out in thin air, and the bridge will appear, and it did. That happens in the movies. It doesn't happen in life. You're not just supposed to believe something so, so that it will become true. You need to know the truth and believe the truth. See, it, we've gone through quite a time in the history of the Western, uh, Western civilization where uh, it's not popular to believe that we receive knowledge from God through the word of God that what we believe is based upon what God has revealed to us through his word. That's what we're believing. We're believing truth. It's based upon knowledge that God gives us through his word about who he is and what he has done in his son. And so having faith in Christ 
in Scripture is trusting God's testimony about him. God has testified concerning his son. And, the, and here's the issue. Do you believe God's testimony? There's, th- there's two really dramatic situations that happened in the life of Jesus where God actually spoke from heaven and people heard his voice. One was when he was baptized. When John baptized him in the river and God spoke from, from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember when Moses and Elijah appeared there with Jesus and his disciples saw him in his glory. And God spoke from heaven after Peter said, hey, we should build three temples here, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Jesus, God wanted to make it clear, oh, Moses and Elijah are not Jesus. Jesus is my eternal son. And so God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my eternal son in whom I am well pleased my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Trust him. Believe him. And so what are we trusting in Christ for? That's the question I'd like to answer today. Uh, this, this issue to me is so incredibly important. I've been praying for someone for this last month, and God has just overwhelmed my heart to see one of my grandsons come to faith in Christ. He just so desperately needs to come to faith in Jesus, to come to rest his faith completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's such an important issue. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you've never come to lean upon him, you've never come to trust him for what he has done, then you don't have a relationship with the living God. And we're living in, we're living in dangerous times walking outside of Christ because the day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment is coming upon this world. And God is a glorious judge and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. But there's several things that the Bible tells us we must trust Christ for or because of. And the first thing is this. It is we are trusting that Christ's life was good enough. What I mean by that, according to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and are falling, present tense, all have sinned in the past and are continually falling short of the glory of God. Now, if that's true, and it is, then we need somebody who has, does not fit that category that we can trust in. And that's exactly what we're called to do. The New Testament reports that there was such a life Someone who lived a life on this earth that did not, was without sin, and they did not fall short of the glory of God. And ironically, that man was crucified as a criminal. He was hung on a cross. And he's the only man who's ever lived a perfect life. He is perfect righteousness. In the Bible, primarily righteousness is living up to the covenant that you're in. When we live a life of righteousness, we are living according to the covenant we have with God that God has entered into with us. Jesus lived perfectly before God because he kept that covenant. He lived his life in perfect obedience to that covenant with the living God. Uh, There was a, a view of the cross that was back in the 11th century by Anselm. It was that Jesus accomplished wonderful things, a lot of merit. He built up all this merit, and there's enough merit in Jesus that anybody who wants some can have some. But it's much more profound than that. Jesus kept the covenant perfectly. He lived in perfect righteousness. 
we're going to be looking at Luke in a couple of weeks. And when we get into Luke, we'll see that there's two people there that it says they lived in righteousness. Uh, they, they were upright. It was Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. What does he mean by that? He means that they lived according to the covenant. They kept up their responsibility in the covenant, and they lived lives that were commendable. But Jesus is the only one who's lived without sin and who's lived in perfect obedience to the Father. You know, every, every household has rules that we live by. We want to treat each other in a certain way. The Bible says that the basic rules of life is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> love those that you have contact with, in other words. That's a, that's a tough command, isn't it? That's a tough command to honestly love from your heart those that God places in your life or places in pro- close proximity to your life. Remember when someone asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells the parable. Remember the parable about the good Samaritan, the man who was beat up and left to die alongside the road, and two religious men walk by, a priest and a Levite, and they walk by, but they went on the other side of the road because they didn't want to be defiled by this guy who was laying there bleeding to death. And then a Samaritan, a despised person in the eyes of the Jews, walked by. He went over, picked the man up, carried him to a place where he could be cared for, paid for it, did everything he could for him. He showed him love. And Jesus says, so who is the neighbor? <laughs> Who's the neighbor? Who is the person that we actually love? This is, what, this is what we're called to do. This is what Jesus said the two great commandments are, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves. Well, I'm sure you have some neighbors that aren't all that lovable, don't you? <laughs> we've all got stories, right, about neighbors we've had or we have right now. It's supernatural. And yet when you read the gospel accounts, this is what you see in the life of Jesus. You see a man who loved God supremely above all things and, and loved every person that came into his sphere. He told them the truth. He healed them. He gave them life. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived a perfect life because all the rest of us, all the rest of us have sinned and we are continually falling short of the glory of God. And we're aware of that. And so what we're trusting is we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus manifested his righteousness in the way that he lived. He didn't didn't become righteous because he lived right. He was righteous and therefore he lived right. And so when you read his life, it's almost shocking. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what Jesus would do as if, he was, if he was an American here today and you were talking to him about t- politics. I can't even imagine. But he always did what was right. Because he loved his father with all of his heart. And he loved those that God brought into his life. God's covenant with Israel, uh, God laid down some very stringent house rules. But in and through all of that and behind it all was relationship with him. That's what it was all about. Why do you, why do you have house rules in your house? Why, do you, why is it just, even if you don't have it written down, you have house rules, you expect certain things from people in your household. You don't like to speak to you. 
like to smile when they talk to you, you know, to act like they they actually care about you. And it's tough when you have when you go through those times when somebody in the household is acting like you're an enemy. And they're having a hard time figuring out why that matters to you. Well, it matters to God. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And when you go through and read the Gospels, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the story of Jesus. You'll be astounded if you take seriously what it says. A man who knew how to love. A, the eternal Son of God who became the incarnate Son of God and came into our world and lived before man and God in perfection, in absolute righteousness. And so our trust, what we are trusting is we are trusting in his perfect righteousness, that he is perfectly righteous, and that if we can become identified with him, we can also have righteous, a righteous standing before God. In, in uh, Romans chapter 5, you have a portrait there of the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam who was created in the garden and the last Adam who was Jesus Christ. You have a picture of those two and a contrast between them. And the contrast is very clear. That Jesus, this, this last Adam, the first Adam was dis- disobedient. He abandoned the way. He apostatized from God. He committed treason against God. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, was obedient and faithful to God. Peter says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now what he's referring back to is the Garden of Eden. The first deceitful expression that came out of a human being's mind, a mouth, was in the garden when Adam said, in response to God's question, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And what did Adam say? He said, it's this woman you gave me. (laughs) She ate and she gave it to me to eat. Men are still speaking those kind of deceitful words from time to time. I've heard them before. (laughs) It's this woman. It's this woman. That's what my problem is. No, it's my heart. It's this heart that I have. But Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In the book of Proverbs, deceit, speaking deceit, is at at its heart covering our sins. Isn't it a wonderful thing? I, I hope you're aware of this, that the Bible teaches that as a believer, I don't have to pretend that I haven't sinned. I don't have to lie about the fact that I still have sin clinging to me, that I can go to the Father and confess my sin. I don't have to say, it's this woman you gave me. I can say, God, I've sinned against you, and I thank you for your forgiveness based upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. So the first thing we trust Christ for is we trust that his life was perfect, that his life was an absolute expression of his righteousness, that he qualifies to be the Savior of the world, the Savior of you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. No matter what kind of sin is hidden in your heart, Jesus Christ is the kind of Savior that you need because there is no deceit found in his mouth. That's what we're trusting Christ for. The life which you and I could not lead, he lived perfectly. He is righteous, and he offers that righteousness to us. The second thing is that we are trusting that his death was accepted by the Father 
That is, it paid for our sins in full. I know sometimes it's confusing for people who aren't used to listening to Christians talk, and we talk about the blood of Jesus. We sing about the blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood, and we talk about the blood all the time. What's that all about? It's about the kind of death he died. Jesus didn't die of old age. He didn't die because he got a disease and he suffered on a bed until he died. Jesus was crucified. Jesus had his, his blood, he shed his blood on the cross. And so blood, his blood speaks of violent death under the judgment of God. It's a funny little thing, a habit in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew language, blood in the body is always in the singular. But when it's out of the body, it's always in the plural. And that's because when it's spilt, when it's poured out, you lose life. Life is gone. And that's what happened to Jesus. He spilled his blood. And so we are trusting in the Father that he has accepted his death for us. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, this may seem, doesn't, the logic of it may you may miss it, but here's the thing. If you go back and read the Old Testament, you see that God taught his people for centuries that it was necessary for the shedding of blood to take place in order for sin to be, for God to be propitiated or satisfied in regards to the sins of his people. That was all to picture what Jesus was going to do for us. And so we trust, we trust that Jesus' death was accepted by the Father as payment in full for our sins. Payment in full, not 90% and you do the rest. Salvation isn't, yeah, you trust Jesus for the majority of it, but then you've got you've to get your 10% accomplished so that he can fully accept you. No, the Bible teaches that it's the death of Jesus that pays for our sins in full. Something I always notice when I read this <clears throat> account of the crucifixion is that it touches my heart because I know he's dying for me and because of me. And he's dying for you and because of you to pay for your sins. The the world's filled with people who are not quite sure of this at all. Uh, That's why he died. He died for our sins. His own contemporaries didn't view his death in terms of a sacrificial atonement for us. They viewed him as dying for his own sins. I'm not talking about his followers. I'm talking about those who kept saying, crucify him. In fact, uh, Isaiah 53, 4 puts it like this. We esteemed him. That is, this is what we thought of him. We saw him as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, he was dying for his own sins. You see, they they considered him a sinner because he was a threat to them, the leaders of, of Israel. And so they had him crucified. What they didn't know, that God was accomplishing something that they could never accomplish. And that was, he was dying in our place, in our stead. In Deuteronomy 21, it says that if somebody commits a horrible crime and you, you kill them, you execute them, and you hang them on a tree, they're cursed. And it says, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree on a cross, and he was accursed for us. The curse, the punishment that was due me was placed upon him. And so I understand that he wasn't stricken for his sins, but for my sins. For my sins. I watched uh, on YouTube, they have 
one of the things they have on YouTube is the, the Gospel of John. And I, the other day in my office, I started watching this. I just couldn't stop. It was just amazing because every word in the text is spoken in this video. And you see it acted out. Now, sometimes you're not satisfied with the way they're portraying it in little places. But I got to tell you, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? That Jesus took your place on the cross. And he received the full blow of God's judgment on your sins in his person, in his very body. Paul says in Romans 8, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. There was no sin in him. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's an amazing transaction. The amazing thing about the cross is this is something God did without your permission. (laughs) He sent his son into the world to take your place and to die on the cross for you without you asking for him. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, this, uh, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? This is no timeshare presentation. This isn't God saying, uh, how would you like to buy into this program? No, he's saying, this is what I've done for you. I sent my son to die on the cross in your place. He's like the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, according to John the Baptist. And um, in in Romans 3.25, it says he's the mercy seat. Well, the mercy seat was that thing within the Holy of Holies where the member of the cherubim were faced over it, and in, in that place was where sinners could meet with God. The priests, only the high priest could go in, but he was a sinner, But the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would go there to the mercy seat and he would meet God. He would offer an offering for all the people. And for that moment, he could could actually enter into the presence of God and leave the presence of God without dying. Isn't that amazing? You can can go right into the presence of God. Well, the book of Hebrews says, if you've put your trust in Christ, you have free access to God. And you have freedom of speech in his presence. You can actually tell him what you need. You can, you can ask what your heart desires. Jesus said, if you're abiding in me and my words are abiding in you, you can ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. Why is that? Because Christ has purchased you. And he's purchased this salvation so that you could enter into the very presence of God. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable precisely because his life was good enough. And he died for you. He died for you, the Lamb of God without blemish. He's the acceptable sacrifice. The third thing we trust Christ for is we are trusting that he was raised from the dead and he lives on our behalf. He lives on our behalf. That's something you need to remember as you think about this coming election because everybody's so upset. There's some little handouts over there by Trevin Wax about the kind of attitude we should have as we face this uh, election. It has nothing to do with who you should vote for. It has to do with how we should treat each other, that we should give each other space, and we should show each other grace. What if you come to a different conclusion than I do? As you exercise your responsibility to vote, this privilege that you have, 
You don't have to judge your neighbor because they don't vote for who you vote for. You don't have to twist their arm and convince them that the way you're voting is the only way to vote. You can actually trust in the living God that Christ is seated on the throne at the right hand of God and he's reigning over this universe. And he, sits up, he sets up, Daniel says, he sets up the basest of men, the lowliest of men. And he also takes them down because he's a ruler. He's the supreme ruler of this universe. And we're supposed to live like it. So as we exercise our responsibility and our privilege, we can do it in unity and love with each other. Not that we're all going to vote for the same person. But we're going to exercise this privilege, trusting God to accomplish his purpose. Right? Amen? Amen. I believe that. Notice this. This is Hebrews 7.25. It says, therefore, he is able, the risen Christ, is able to save forever, not just for one day, but forever. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Drawing near to God through him is trusting Christ. By trusting Christ, you draw near to God. You come into a relationship with him. Since he, the Lord Jesus Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that amazing that someone's making intercession for you? You know, every time you pray, you don't realize it, but you're actually joining in in a fellowship of prayer because Jesus is praying for you and the Holy Spirit is praying from within you. Jesus intercedes for you day and night. And the, Lord, and the Holy Spirit is in you, and he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. What that means is he is emotionally connected to you, and he wants God to do in your life what will truly be a blessing to you. And so Christ is interceding for me, and he's interceding for you. I'm telling you, I am so amazed at this that he, he would be interceding for me. He's interceding for me. I'm so glad for that. Have you ever had those times when you thought, God, God's never going to put up with this, what I've just done? This is it. He's going to cut me off. Well, he would if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus is interceding for you. His work is incomplete without the resurrection and Pentecost. Pentecost is when he poured out the Spirit and gave us the Spirit to apply what he did on the cross to our lives. In the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, he went back to the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you need somebody to intercede for you? He's interceding for all of you who've rested your faith in him. He continually intercedes for you. This is a wonderful thing. When you come to trust in Christ, you enter into a relationship that's going to last for eternity. And throughout your whole life, he is interceding for you, and you need it desperately. I need it desperately. And that's exactly what he does. Remember the children of Israel, they were wayward and stiff-necked people. They had all kinds of sins and iniquities and problems. As God's leading them through those 40 years in the wilderness, remember he provided manna. The word manna meant what is it? Because they had no clue. They'd never seen anything like this before. But he gives them this incredible food, this nourishment. And nobody was allergic to it. This manna. And yet they grumbled. They grumbled and they complained that they weren't back in Egypt eating what they ate in Egypt instead of this food, this bread out of heaven. Oh, they were, they were an incredible lot. 
In fact, since they couldn't get their hands on God, they threatened to kill Moses. In that context, the priest making intercession, praying for this wayward people who were inclined to go back to Egypt to turn their back on God. But you know, we're kind of like that too, aren't we? We're like in James 1, he says, uh, you know, he tells us that trials, that God brings trials in our life in order to produce good things. And he says, if you're in the midst of a trial, you can rejoice. But if you're having trouble rejoicing and you, you need wisdom, just ask of God, he'll give you wisdom. But then he says this, he says, but you must ask in faith without doubting for the man who doubts is like a wave of the ocean. Once it's going this way and then it's going that way. See, the problem isn't with God giving you the wisdom you need. The problem is you receiving it. You ask for it and you want it, but then you turn to your own wisdom instead of waiting for God's wisdom. It's, it's our just continual problem. But the wonderful thing is we have someone interceding for us. That's why we're going to be saved for eternity. It isn't because of, it isn't some little form of eternal security. No, it's the eternal intercession of the Son of God. He's going to save you to the uttermost. He's going to save you to the very end. He's praying to the Father in some mysterious way that we can't even comprehend at the moment. Jesus is praying to the Father and he's praying for his people because we need this high priest. We need him to intercede for us every day. In fact, I'm sure if I said to you, all right, I'd like every Christian who doesn't need Jesus to uh, intercede for you just to stand up and we'll meet over there uh, in one of those rooms over there. Nobody would do that. We all know we need him. We know that we desperately need Christ interceding for us. Listen to John Newton. He wrote this. He says, Ere you call me, well you knew what a heart like mine would do. And then in another song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, was written back in like 1750 by Robert Robinson. He was only 22 years old when he wrote this, wrote this, but he had real insight into the gospel. He said, he has this phrase in that song, prone to wander. In other words, to wander away from Christ. Prone to wander how I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Why don't you? Because someone's interceding for you. He intercedes for every believer. Jesus calls your name to the Father. Are there people that you're praying for that nobody else prays for? The only time God hears that name is because you're praying for that person? Well, I got news for you. Somebody's praying right alongside you, and they're calling out their name too. And it's Christ. It's Christ. He intercedes for you. And he intercedes for those whom you intercede for. On those occasions when I'm especially tempted to do what he says in this song, to leave the one I love. What is Christ doing? He's interceding. He's interceding. Have you ever tried to walk away? And then you found out you couldn't? Ever have that happen? <laughs> you haven't? I have many times. <laughs> and you discover you can't. And the reason you can't is because he's interceding. He's interceding for us. The very outset of the letter of Hebrews, we're told that Christ upholds all things, without exception, all things, everything that exists. He upholds all things. 
and he does it by the word of his power. In other words, the one who's interceding for you is the eternal son of God who has all power and authority. And he goes before the father and asks for you. Wow. So he directs every, my every step so that I can, make, I can make it to the last day. Because on the last day, I'm going to trust Christ. Think of all the, can you think of things where in the providence of God, he's protected your life? Where you should have died? I can remember one time coming back from, we'd gone down when I was, we were in school and Judy and I were in this choir. We weren't married, we, just, we weren't even dating. She was just in this choir. And so we, went, we were in Southern California and I was driving a car. I had six of us in the car coming back over the grapevine. And we're coming down one of those hills. I fell asleep. And uh, I woke up at the last minute. I'm coming right up on the back of some cars, and I woke up. It scared me to death. Because all I could think of, what if I killed all six of us? Can you imagine the kind of grief those families would go through? And so for the first time in my life, I pulled off, went into a restaurant, and had a cup of coffee. I had never drank coffee before. And that's why I drank it, because I wanted to wake up. But you know what? You know what protected me? It was the living God. Because Jesus was interceding. And he is continually saving us. He's continually saving us day by day. Romans ten eleven says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame in Scripture is always connected to judgment. Judgment is shame. The prophets, they, they were very graphic, even embarrassing language to speak of the shame of judgment. For example, in one place it says that God's going to lift the skirts of Israel over her head so that her lovers may see her nakedness. It was a shameful thing. Adam and Eve were judged in the garden immediately and they became aware of their nakedness. They became aware of the fact they had no covering. But at the moment judgment is brought on our sin, Hebrews 9.27, it's the point out that a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Jesus is the one who is literally found naked upon the cross for us. He dies in our place. I don't know if you've ever read the accounts, but they beat him to a pulp, and then they stripped him, and they hung him on a cross for the whole world to see. And that crowd of people that were standing there at the foot of the cross looking up at Jesus, the eternal Son of God, become a man hanging in this, this place for you and me. He suffered the shame and the judgment in our place, and now he ever lives to intercede for us. What are you leaning on today? Are you leaning on Christ's life, which is good enough, his death, which was acceptable to the Father, his ongoing intercession now that goes on? Are you leaning on him, or are you leaning on other things? Are you leaning on your own goodness, your own good works, something else? What are you leaning on? I want to appeal to you to come to lean upon him. I was praying this week uh, for my grandson, and I was asking God if he would please put him in a situation like this where he hears the gospel preached and where he hears someone invite him to come to Christ. I never give invitations, and I'm not going to have you come forward or anything, but I want to ask you, I want to plead with you, if you don't know Christ, would you today turn to him in faith and believe upon him? We're going to sing a couple songs, and after that, 
we'll be, I'll be up here. I'd love to talk to you about how, what, it, what it means to receive Christ, what it means to come to lean upon him and receive his salvation, his free offer of forgiveness and life. There's no use living this life apart from Christ. There is no life apart from Christ. The Bible tells us this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so I plead with you, if you don't know Christ, come to Christ today. Believe on him. Receive this life that he's purchased for you by his own death in your place. And you can begin to experience what it's like to have someone interceding for you, the eternal Son of God interceding for you day by day, whatever you're going through. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you now. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that the one that we have come to trust in, the one that we lean upon, is able to bear our weight. We thank you, Father, that he's able to save to the uttermost. We thank you, O Father, that he is the qualified Savior who is able to save and save completely. And we thank you that you gave us the faith to rest in you and upon him. And we have come to have this life that he gives so freely. I pray for anyone here that has not yet trusted Christ, has not yet received this gift of life and the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation to the living God who created them for this very purpose. I pray that they would turn to him today and find life and find forgiveness, find what it's like to be in the family of God, to have a father who loves him unconditionally and gloriously. We ask this in Jesus' name so that he might be glorified. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.